Steve. Well, gang, I'm glad that you're here today, and I uh, appreciate you coming. I usually don't talk about what my message is going to be next week, most of the time because I don't have a clue. But uh, I want to take a moment before we begin this morning to uh, encourage you to be here next week for sure. Ladies, um, if I were you, wives, if I were you, I would uh, get my husband here next week, okay? You have your ways, all right? And I, I want to encourage you to, to have them here. We're going to be talking about temptation next week, how to deal with it and how to overcome it. I believe it, men, I believe next week might be uh, strategically important uh, in your life. And so I would encourage you guys to come, and ladies, I would encourage you to have your uh, men, or if you have teenage boys, I would encourage you to have them, okay? Well, I'm glad you're here. I want you to take your Bible this morning, and in just a little bit, we're going to be going to a New Testament passage, Romans chapter 12, all right? I want to talk to you a little bit first, but eventually we're going to get there. We uh, began a new series last week on the subject of how to have spiritual success in 2013. Now, not success as the world might define it, not to accumulate toys, not to even increase your bank account. I've already said you need to give your bank account to church anyway, didn't I, okay? Nothing like that. I want to talk to you this for the next several weeks on how to be spiritually successful in 2013. Now, if you were with us last week, I challenge you that in the differing circumstances you're going to find yourself in this year, or perhaps in some of the decisions that you're going to have to make this year, that you should be able to say yes to three very important questions. Let me give them to you again. Number one, did God get glory in this? Regardless of the circumstance you're in, regardless of the decision that you have to make, when you get through that circumstance or perhaps when you've made that decision and you're living with the aftermath of it, you ought to be able to look yourself in a mirror and ask yourself, did God get glory? And you should be able to say, yes, God was glorified. And if you're able to say yes, then this next year could be a great year for you. Question number two, did this turn out for good to those that I love the most? In other words, when you get through your circumstance, if you're able to say this was good for my family, or perhaps this was really good for my church, then you've handled that circumstance or you made that decision right. And then question number three, did this show grace toward those that are lost? And oh, dear Christian, listen. We live in a community made up of thousands and thousands of people and they don't come to church. They don't hear preachers take the Bible. They don't hear Sunday school teachers take their Bible and teach you lessons. They're looking at your life. They're reading Jesus in your life. They see you at your job. They see you at the, 
at the at the show they they at the shows you go to they they watch what you do at Wally World they're looking at you and they you ought to be able to say that in all of my dealings in all of my relationships I was able to show grace to those that are lost now last week we looked at a wonderful passage of scripture really my my uh, favorite verses in the Old Testament, Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. And, and here's what I said. As we enter the new year, just trust God with everything. Trust God with all of your heart. Don't think it over too much. Don't overthink this thing called life, okay? Because you're not going to be able to figure it out. But in everything you do, praise Him. Give Him glory. Give Him honor. And when you do, I want you to know that God is able, well able to handle all the rest of the things that come. It's a great way to start a new year. Well, today, I want us to go to the New Testament. And I want to talk to you on what I think is a very important subject, a a very important topic, and that is this, getting rid of religion and trusting, focusing totally on God. Now, let me explain that to you. I probably should do a little explanation. I know you've heard me say, and if you've grown up in church at all, you've heard pastors say or teachers say, that it's really not about religion at all, it's about relationship. Have you heard that? Sure you have. It's not about religion, it's about relationship. It's not about man's reach toward God. Rather, it is God's reach down to man. Certainly nothing wrong with that, because it's basically right. Okay, Religion is man in self-effort, trying to find some kind of favor with God. Now, it's impossible, but that's what religion teaches. And that's what religion does. And that's what a lot of people that are caught up in the religion cycle try to do. Relationship is God stepping into our world with his self-disclosure and through his marvelous sovereign grace saving his people. So while you've heard us say it's not about religion, it's about relationship and that being right, let me just say to you over the last few weeks as I tried to put together this series, I came to the conclusion while there's nothing wrong necessarily with that, that statement is a little incomplete. I don't think we should get up here and say it's not about religion it's about relationship because relationship is the fruit of something. I want to talk to you today. And I want to drive into your heart today the idea that it's not about religion. It's about theology. Because you see, I think this is where we may have missed it. And by the way, gang, that's why I teach preteens on Wednesday night. That's why I've given up teaching adults. 
Because I believe that we've messed this up. I think we've lost it. And I think we as adults have somehow missed it a little bit. And so I've decided we could go back and grab these preteens when they're so impressionable. And if we can teach them about the right kind of theology, then when they get to be our age, maybe they won't struggle so much. So let me deal with this idea of theology for just a moment. One of my, one of my favorite Bible teachers, a guy by the name of R.C. Sproul. Everybody, anybody ever heard of R.C. Sproul? Well, good. There's a few of you folks out there. Let me tell you, I, I think of all the Bible teachers in the United States today, the guy who may have it right best, none of us have it fully right, but I think maybe the guy who might have it right best is a guy from Florida by the name of R.C. Sproul. In one of his books, he, he tells the story how that, that several years ago, he was invited to speak at a, at a Christian college. The college was really struggling, and the college was trying to put together uh, what was going wrong and how, what could they do to make it right. And so he was there to talk to them, and as, as he was walking around the campus, he, he came across a, a sign across the door, and on the sign it, it said, Department of Religion. And he said he got to thinking about that. And so a little bit later, in one of the meetings he had, he, he asked them, he said, has that sign always been on that door? And they just kind of looked at him. No one really knew. And then later he, he, he said, well, and, and one of the older guys stood up and said, well, no. He said, some years ago it was changed from the Department of Theology to the par Department of Religion. And he said, well, why did you make the change? And he said, well, no one seemed to know. In fact, furthermore, he said, no one really seemed to care. And so over the course of the next few days, R.C. Sproul began to talk to them about the difference. And he told them, and I want to tell you today, that, beloved, there's a fundamental difference in religion and theology. And so hear me out closely for a few moments. Religion starts with man. Religion is the effort of man. Religion is the study of human behavior as it relates to God. Religion perhaps could be the study of anthropology. You remember that in school? One or two shaking their head, the rest of us don't remember all, do we? Religion could be the study of anthropology or sociology. We're in a social network environment. Sociology is a study of people interacting with other people. And so, so we said religion is the study of human behavior, anthropology, sociology, even psychology, with a religious bent to it. However, he said that theology, and listen to this, theology primarily is the study of God. It doesn't begin with man and man's approach to God. It begins with God and God's reaching down to man. It's about his character. It is about his nature. It's about who he is that causes him to act toward humans in history. 
Now, certainly man's included in God's activity. But you have to understand that the beginning point with theology is God. And the beginning point with, re- with, with religion is man. The study of God is theo, theos is God-centric. The study of man is human-centered. Now, church, listen to me. 2013 Indian Springs people, listen to me. Our churches will never be right. Our families will never be right. Our community will never be right. And our nation will never be right until we understand this isn't about some kind of religion thing we do or religion exercise we do Sunday by Sunday. It is the study of God and who God is and what God has done on behalf of his people. And when we're able to get rid of religion, when we're able to extricate religion from our mentality of church and our ideas of church and how we do church, and we begin focusing on the glory of God and Him alone in theology, guess what's going to happen? I'm telling you, gang, your life is going to change. I'm going to tell you that your marriage is not going to go through those rocks that so many marriages today are going through because it's not about you and your little ones. It's about God and His glory. I would suggest to you, if you guys would get on the theology bandwagon, you might even have a better pastor. And you could stand a better one, couldn't you, huh? Everything, listen to my heart, everything will change. When it becomes theology, God, instead of religion, which is man. That's my introduction. Let's stand for God's word. Let's read together Romans 12, 1 and 2, okay? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living, holy sacrifice, acceptable acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? See that word, that? That's purpose. For this purpose, that you may prove what the will of God is. And this will of God for you is good, it's acceptable, in fact, it's even perfect. Father, in these next few moments, help me to be straight and clear. Help me to communicate my best because this is very, very important stuff. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, gang. Be seated, okay? Hey, did the sound system change, too? It did, didn't it? Did my voice get lower or what? It just seemed to be weird. Are you okay? Can you hear me okay? Okay. All right, let me tell you what's going on in in Romans chapter 12. Paul begins a fundamental shift in the letter. For the first 11 chapters, 
Paul has been talking about doctrinal issues, primarily the gospel, which we'll talk about a little bit in just a moment, okay? And so he's been giving doctrinal statements. He's been talking about God's sovereignty and grace. When he comes to chapter 12, he kind of concludes that in a sense. In fact, he bridges it over into some practical areas of, a, of the Christian life. In other words, what he's wanting us to say, wanting us to know is that because of these first 11 chapters and all of this doctrine, all that God has done, that there's some implications to that that ought to affect our life as we live. You see, the Christian life is not just your head, it's your heart, but it's not just your heart, it's your hands, isn't it? It's a way of life. And so Paul said, listen, I'm giving you all this information, but I'm giving it to you so that you can take it and assimilate it into your life, and then you can live your life from it, okay? Let me tell you how I want to I handle this. I've, I've preached this passage probably six, eight times in, in, in my ministry. I don't know how many times here. But I want to handle it just a little bit different today. I want to look at some, a word. Then I want to look, us to look at a couple phrases that I think are pretty important. And then I'll kind of conclude it up and, and give you something to kind of chew on as you leave today. Okay, look at the first word there, the word therefore. Okay, now you've heard me talk about therefore, but let me handle it this way. The word therefore in the Bible is a word that always tells us that what is to follow is the result of what has already been written. And so, therefore, forces you to look back. Now, you have to decide how, how far back. Some go four verses, some go a chapter. As I kind of tore the, the, the idea apart, I want to tell you what I think. I think Paul, as he says the word therefore, is looking all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1. I think Paul is trying to summarize the gospel of grace, and here it is, that man is a sinner. And that man, because he's a sinner, cannot save himself by any kind of self-effort. That's called religion, isn't it? Paul is wanting us to know that man is a sinner, has no capability in himself to do anything good without God's help. Man is a sinner incapable of any kind of self-effort to gain the favor of God. He wants us to know that the gospel of grace is God in sovereign grace electing those whom will receive repentance and faith. And to those who do receive repentance and faith and repent and by faith believe, they will be saved. And then he draws it all together with that word therefore. Literally, therefore, in view of this, Here's how you should live. That's why the word therefore in Scripture is always very important. And when you see therefore, you have to stop and analyze it. Okay? Now look at the phrase with me. By the verse 1, by the mercies of God. Literally, it's through. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, through the mercies of God. Now listen, most of the time when us preachers preach this text, we fly through that phrase by the mercy of God. As I was studying it, it was like God slapped me upside the head and made me, stop me cold, and he asked me a question. Tom, what do you think through the mercies of God really mean? And dear church, listen, if we can somehow get our head around this phrase, 
If we can somehow chew on this phrase, if we can somehow swallow this phrase correctly, then I'm going to make a promise to you. I'm going to promise that Indian Springs Baptist Church will move from religion to theology. And if you think we had a good year in 2012, you're not going to imagine what God is going to do in us and through us for his glory in 2013. You see, the summary of the first 11 chapters is this phrase, through the mercies of God. Now, what is mercy? Well, mercy is more than sympathy. I don't know that God sympathizes in our sin. The mercy of God is God pitying us. It's something he does to us. It's a decision of him toward us. And Paul says through God's pity, his decision to us, we stand complete in him. That ought to change everything in your life. Through his tender mercy, through the pity of God, through grace, we've been accepted and we stand complete in him. Let me, let me summarize it this way. A radical sinful man who was radically lost on his way to hell was radically made righteous through the pity of a radical Savior, the Son of God. And through mercy was given a radically new life. Did you get it? Let me say it again. A radical sinful man, Steve, a radical sinful man was radically lost on his way to hell but through the tender mercy of God was radically made righteous through a radical Savior called the Son of God. And it is through that mercy, Steve, your life was radically made new. And all oh, dear people, church, listen, you swallow, I know Steve, and that's true, isn't it, bro? You swallow that, church. And everything will change. You had nothing to do with your salvation. You weren't good enough. You couldn't be good enough. It is all by grace we live. It is all by grace we breathe. It is all by grace we die. And it, all, it is all by grace that we spend eternity in heaven. That is theology, not religion. And it ought to change. Every area of your it ought to strip you of any kind of religious arrogance, any kind of religious pride that you may have. Now, I told our first service that this is where I begin to rant a little bit, okay? This is where I begin to chase a rabbit, so give me the rabbit chase. Dear people, we live in a culture today that goes around preaching and shouting on TV that you need more of God. You've heard it. It's in the songs that are sung. It's in the sermons that are preached. You got to get more of God. You got to get more of God. And when you get more of God, guess what? You're going to be healthy. How many of you are all healthy? You get more of God, you're going to be wealthy. How many of you are wealthy? Hello? You're going to be wise. How many of you are wise? The older I get, the dumber I am, right? 
And so we have this prevailing view in our culture today that, that you just got to get more of God. And the more you get of God, the better off you're going to be. That's not what Paul says here, though, does he? Paul said it is through the mercies of God you get Him. And so what I want you to know, dear people, is that when you're saved, you can't get more of Him. you got all you can get of Him at that moment. You don't need more of God. He needs more of you. Have you ever said this, I am spiritually dry? Hmm? Or I am spiritually spent? Or I am spiritually lonely? Or have you ever thought, you know, I'm in a desert spiritually? And you get this idea, man, I just wish I could get more of God so I can get out of the desert. I wish I could get more of God so I could get my vitality back. I, you got it all wrong, gang. I was talking to someone not long ago. I'm so dry. The things of God are not exciting anymore to me. I just, I just got to do something. No, you don't. You just release more. You see, maybe instead of crying out to get more of God, maybe the thing here is that we ought to spend a little more time in repenting. Maybe we ought to get rid of the sin. Maybe we ought to get rid of our own critical areas of our life. Maybe we ought to give away some of those things that seem to drive the religion machine and just continue to release more and more. I won't tell you what I think. And remember, I'm dumb. And I'm getting dumber as I get older. But let me tell you what I think. I think the key to spiritual victory in your life is not getting more of God because you can't. It's giving more of yourself to God. And whatever that shakes out for you, certain repentance of sin, keep it fresh. Fellowship with God, keep it fresh. Service to God, keep it fresh. Bible, prayer, sharing, worshiping, keep it fresh. You see, you can't get more of someone you already got. But the biggest challenge of my life is to give him more of me. And if he could just somehow, if I could just somehow, I guess, give him more of me, you'd have a lot better pastor. You'd have a lot better preacher. My wife would have a lot better husband. My kids would have a lot better daddy. My grandkids would have a lot better grandpa. Now, don't tell them they think I hung the moon, okay? All I'm saying to you is theology teaches us about God. And the more we know about God, the more we give ourselves to him. Paul says in view of this mercy, we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices. You see, if we have been justified through mercy, then Paul does say, doesn't he, that there's some implications to it. Well, let me give you a third. Look at verse 1. Let me give you a third statement, okay? The third statement or phrase is, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is only reasonable. It's the word logic there. It's just logical that as you give your bodies, and I think bodies is just not talking about our physical bodies. I think he's talking about the totality of ourselves. If we just continue giving ourselves to him as a holy, living, acceptable sacrifice, then we're going to be so much better off. Now, the good, there's good news and bad news. The good news is you've got to give yourself. That may be hard for you. 
The good news is you don't have to die. I mean here, you don't have to die. See, the picture is an Old Testament sacrifice. You know what they did in the Old Testament? They took the animal. They put him on the offer, and they stuck him with a knife, and he bled out. Here's what Paul is saying. Be like that, but don't have to die, see. Don't run over the words too fast living. I believe God wants you to live. And I believe you ought to have a zest for life. I think you ought to start saying, go for the gusto, but that's a beer commercial. Go for the goodie, okay? You ought to live. God wants you to live, people. He gets glory in his children living. Don't run over holy. See, as you're living, you be holy and righteous and pure. Let me tell you what happened yesterday. I had the blessed privilege of marrying a young couple. She grew up in this church. Her mom and dad are faithful members. He grew up at First Baptist Benton, and his family are good and faithful. And, and in my premarital counseling, we went through three months together. And in those three months, very early on at the beginning, this young man looked at me. And he said, I want you to know that we've committed not to have sex to our wedding night. And I said, oh, what a beautiful thing. And, uh, and I, I, I commended them. I said, I'm going to tell you what you did. You made your parents proud. But more than that, you made God proud. Holy sacrifice. They got married yesterday. I wonder what last night was for them, huh? Hey, ain't nothing wrong with that. And that's God's plan. God put that thing together. God drew up those plans. And a young couple in purity bowed their head before Almighty God and they did it the right way. A holy, living, and acceptable. And Paul said it's just logical. It's the way it's supposed to be. Now, gang, let me give you, I told you I was going to give you a couple statements. I'm going to give you two statements, and then I'm going to close with something for you to chew on, okay? But before I do, let me ask you, because sometimes it's not what you say, it's what's heard, okay? So let me ask, did you get what I've said so far, okay? Did you understand the difference between religion and theology? You kind of got it a little bit? That it's not about centered on man and man's activity. It's centered upon God and God's activity through grace. Let me say to you that if you're caught up in your self-effort, you've got the best that religion can do. And it is not and it never will be good enough. Okay? But if you understand that it's about theology, all about what God has done and what God is doing through his tender mercies, then like I said, everything in your life is going to change. What you do, why you do it, how you do it changes. Because it becomes his glory. And that's theology working itself out. Now before I give you the statements, let me ask you a question. How many of you have preteen kids, 4th, 5th, and 6th grade? Would you raise your hand? Okay, let me tell you, gang. We're teaching your children theology. We spent this past fall and we're finishing up this spring not in religion with them, but in theology with them. And when we're through with this, we're going into the Ten Commandments. You know why? Because we believe the most important thing that we can teach them, and I think perhaps the most important thing we can teach adults, is who 
God is. Who the character of God is. And when we get our theology right, relationships take care of itself, right? It becomes the icing on the cake. It becomes the goodie at the end of the life. All right, let me give you a couple statements and then we'll be through. Look again in verse 1, okay? Real life is about surrender, not commitment. Paul says the Christian life is sacrifice in view of his mercy. Now listen, when you commit to something, you're keeping control of it. But when you sacrifice something, you give up control of it. You see the distinction? For example, if I, if I say to, to someone, if I say to Don, Don, I, I'm going to commit to pray for you every day. What I'm saying to him is, I'm in control of what I do to you, Don. A, a, a husband or a wife says, I commit myself to you. What they're saying is, as long as I feel like it, or as long as I remember it, as long as I want to, I'm going to be whatever it is you commit to. That's commitment, and commitment is control. But when Paul talks about here, he's talking about living sacrifice. He's talking about surrender, and surrender means I give up control. I release myself. So I want you to understand that real life with Christ is not about committing anything at all. It's about surrendering up everything. It's giving up control to him who gave you life in the first place. So you remember verse 1. Real life is about surrender, not commitment. Number 2, look at verse 2. Real life, and this is where we tend to spend more time, but I'm not going to do it this morning. Real life is about transforming, not conforming. Okay? We are told not to be conformed to the world. That's what Paul is telling us. But our minds are to be transformed. The word conformed means to be outside control or worldly control or the, the pressure of the world pushing you in to make your decisions or giving you directions of life. Paul says, forget that. That's not going to work. We're to be transformed inside. And transformation of the mind inside can only be through the Holy Spirit of God working in your life. So Paul said, don't be conformed by the outside. Be transformed by the inside. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Allow the Spirit of God to release you to be like Christ. That's theology. That changes your life. Well, here's our statement, and we're through. What I want you to know is that you and I live in tremendous social pressure today. Uh, we're in a social media world. We live in tremendous social pressures today. Our, our teenagers especially. But it's not just teenagers, it's adults. Every day, whether it's on the job or wherever you're at, you're being pressured to view life, to have a worldview like the world does, and we know that's opposed to the Word of God, right? Opposed to Scripture. But the pressure is there, and we have to live in it. And when we find ourselves rebelling from it, what happens? We get labeled, do we not? Hey, all you got to do is turn on the boob tube, you know? Watch some of the shows. Watch some of the, 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 the reactions to Christians when they take stands for Christ. 
They're labeled quickly, are they not? Louis Giglio, who, who is one of the best Bible communicators in our country today. I'm telling you, if the dude was here, you'd fire me tomorrow and get him. So don't worry, he's never coming here, okay? He was asked to bring, what, the benediction at the inauguration? And so they found out that the guy had the audacity to say that homosexuality is a sin. Every Christian believes that or should believe that. The Bible addresses that. He just said the obvious. It's not, it's not personal against the person. It's against the practice. It's against the position. It's sinful. And because of that, the news media said he resigned. I don't tell you. I believe every phone in Washington was calling him. I believe every dingbat politician in Washington was calling him. Hey, dude, you, you believe that? You can't do this. You don't fit in our mold. You don't fit in our category, you see. And so when we as Christians reject the conformity of the world and we begin to transform our mind through renewing of the Holy Spirit working in us, all of a sudden we're going to get all these labels placed on us. I mean, some kids are called dorks. Some are called what? Nerds. That may be my generation. Uh, geeks. Ultimately, what the world is going to call, if you're going to live for Christ, in 2013, you know what the world is going to say to you and say about you? You know what the world's going to label you? A fool. They're going to label you foolish. You know what? They're right. They're right. Hey, listen to what Paul said. We are fools for Christ's sake. Hmm. So it's okay to be a fool for Christ? You bet. And you will be labeled if you live for Jesus. But dear people, it's okay. You want to have a radically different 2013? Then radically worship a radical Savior who radically saved you and radically transformed your life into a new life. And don't care about what the world says. Care only about him that can cast your body and soul into hell. You care about what God says. And dear people, I submit to you as your pastor who loves you and worries about you. As a mother hen worries over her chickens, I say to you, we need to be radical for Jesus. Our community needs to see us radical for Christ, you'll be better, your family will be better, your church will be better, our community will be better. Who knows, when we get radical, maybe, maybe God might just bring a revival to our community through the people, through the radical people of Indian Springs Baptist Church. Let's pray. Father, I love this passage. The fact is I fail in understanding it all and I fall so short in applying it all.
but it stirs my heart and it burns my gut. And I want to be a radical for Christ. I want to be labeled as a fool for Jesus. And God help us to realize that the more we are, the better we are. The stranger we are, the better we are. Because it's that moment in that time where you'll have opportunity to change us and make us better. To improve who we are for you. Maybe today there's been some folks who have been in that desert and they've been trying to get more and more of you and never realizing they already got you. They just need to give way of themselves more to you. Maybe that's their opportunity today. Maybe there's some who need a place to serve, need a place to worship, need a place to glorify you. Maybe today this has become evident to them this is their place. Maybe there's some today that's never realized that grace is about theology. It's about the grace of God given to man and never about man striving to reach up to God like we could. Help them to understand it's an impossibility. Only by receiving what you've done on the cross and the offer you extend of eternal life can man be saved. These next few moments, Father, between you and them, may you be glorified in whatever shakes. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together.